As we prepare to enter into a time of prayer to begin our service, church, it's already been mentioned uh, by Nate during our scripture reading, but we want to specifically pray for the nation of Ukraine and for especially our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in Ukraine. Uh, the church there, the body there, is living out a dependence upon uh, the Lord that uh, was probably foreign to the level, uh, foreign to us, to that level in these days. And in the days ahead, in the week ahead, uh, Pastor Taylor is going to be saying more about ways that we can tangibly support our brothers and sisters in Christ there. We're a part of the Acts 29 network, and as part of that, we have a sister church, an Acts 29 church in Ukraine. And so uh, be on the lookout for more from our pastor uh, regarding how we can tangibly uh, stand in support of our brothers and sisters there. But during this time, let's go together as we prepare our hearts to receive from the Lord. And one more time, let's lift up our brothers and sisters there. Father, we come before you this morning, recognizing our total dependence upon you. For our every breath, for our daily bread, for our sleep at night and the ability to wake again in the morning. And Father, we thank you that the dependence that we have is not uncertain, but it is perfectly certain in a perfect Savior. Father, we do lift up our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who right at this moment, as we are gathered in the safety and comfort of this building, without a concern of being just driven out of our homes, without explosions going on around us. God, our hearts are with them, and we want to lift them up to you and ask for your hand of protection to be over them. We ask, Father, for your provision as many of them are traveling hours upon hours and miles upon miles to seek safety. We ask, Father, that that the anxiety and the fear that comes with the situation they're in would be settled in perfect peace by the presence of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that in the midst of the chaos that our brothers and sisters are experiencing, even right now, that you and your presence would be made manifest. They would be drawn deeper and deeper into dependence upon you and see your mighty hand and your outstretched arm move in ways that bring you glory and honor that can only be pointed to you and that draw others to yourself. And so we pray over our brothers and sisters this morning, peace and safety and above all your abiding presence. And as we turn today, Father, to our service, we pray that as we sit under the sound of your word, that we would once again draw ourselves into dependence upon you. I depend upon you, Father, to be able to communicate the things that you have placed before me so that they are your words and not my own. So hide me behind your cross and your word today. Empty me of myself and fill me with your spirit, Father, that these may be your words used for your glory and for your people. And we pray all of these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, thank you for joining us today. If you're here in person or joining us online, my name is Dave Eatman. If we have not met, I serve as an assistant pastor here at Cross, and it's always a privilege to me to be able to lead out in our time of worship together in the Word. 
Uh, we have been for several weeks now walking through a message series we have titled Ecclesia. Uh, and what we've been looking at uh, are the fundamental elements of what constitutes a New Testament church. And we've been discussing at length the importance of the fact that words have meaning. And this word that we use, church, is not just a general term, but, it, but biblically, a New Testament church has very specific meaning and very specific characteristics. We've been working off of this definition that I believe will be before you on the screen and is in your worship guide as we have referred to it each week, that a local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. So far in this series, we've been walking through each of the foundational elements of what it means to be a gathering, a church, beginning with the crucial importance on the first week of being a people of prayer. And what we covered and reviewed during that week is that if we are working outside of uh, prayer and dependence on the Lord, that that's us at work. But when we are coming before the Lord and dependence upon him and through prayer to him, that is God at work. From there, we moved on to the centrality of the teaching and the preaching of our authoritative standard and foundation, the word of God. And we reviewed the fact that the word of God is our central authority for all matters for the church related to both doctrine, what we believe, and how we live out our lives before Christ. The next two weeks, we surveyed the ordinances of baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper. The two symbols that we were given as a church, both to symbolize our new life in Christ and the fact that we have died and been buried and risen to new life again with him in baptism, and the commemoration and remembrance of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross as we remember his death, burial, and resurrection and communion, and the certain fact that he will return again. Last week, uh, Alex walked us through one of our primary areas of external focus as we looked at our responsibility in evangelism, in enthusiastically sharing the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for all who would believe in him and call upon his name in faith. And today, our focus will shift inward as we look at our calling to fellowship within the body, a call to live deeply unified and deeply connected lives that are rooted in our shared identity and our shared eternity as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Today, we are going to look together at our calling to community. You know, uh, bumper stickers are pretty popular, right? And you can just survey bumper stickers as you drive around, and you can really see what someone identifies with and what they're drawn to, uh, and especially when it comes to like certain sports teams. Or I always get a kick out of when people are talking about their favorite team and how they perform, and they say, we did this this weekend. Or we, and I'm thinking, so what part of the team did you play? So if you do that, I'm not shaming you. It's just I just find it funny. 
but we also see these stickers, right, that say different things with life attached to it, right? Like salt life or beach life or cabin life or all these different things. And one that I think resonates the most with me is the one that says Jeep life. So where's my Jeep owners in here? Raise your hand. There we go. There's a few of them. Now, when I talk about Jeep, I'm not talking about like renegades and patriots and liberties. I'm talking about Wranglers, right? That's, so if, if you have something that's not a Wrangler, don't be offended. That's okay. But when when I think about Jeep life, I think about the Jeep, right? The Jeep Wrangler. And my dad was a Jeep guy. Uh, he had a couple different Jeeps throughout his life, uh, so much so that that's how our, uh, our family, through my middle son, Devin, when he was two, uh, and he was trying to tell me something about his papa, and I was like, which papa are you talking about? And he said, Papa Jeep. I mean, and that became, that stuck. That's what we call my, my dad to this day is Papa Jeep. And so uh, when uh, my dad had told him, hey, when you turn 16, I'm going to give you my Jeep and then, and then you'll have the Jeep. Well, unfortunately, my dad passed away when Devin was around seven years old. And so my mom said, here, take this Jeep and it's yours until he turns 16 and then you have to give it up and it becomes uh, his. I'm like, okay, cool. So I became a Jeep guy. And immediately as I'm driving down the road with the Jeep, I noticed like, man, if you're in a Jeep and you pass another Jeep, what happens? There's a wave, right? Every time. That's a tight knit community is Jeep owners. I was driving one day, it was warm outside and I had the top off and I got a phone call. So I was coming up on an intersection. Uh, it's kind of a rural area. I pulled off over by the stop sign in a grassy area and I was taking the phone call and cars are coming up to the stop sign and going, you know, coming through the intersection. And eventually another Jeep pulls up. And the lady that was driving the Jeep, and this is not a statement of judgment, uh, just a statement of description. My perception was her and I probably had really different lives. She had a different worldview and, and different things were important to her. But she saw a Jeep sitting beside the road, and so she pulls over and offered to help to make sure I was okay and check in on me. Uh, tons of people had passed by, but she was the one that stopped because we had that common identity of Jeep owners. And as much as we uh, find community with one another, as we identify with one another about all of these lesser things, to an infinitely greater level, as members of the body of Christ, we are called into community with one another in our shared identity in Christ. We base much of our New Testament pattern for what we view as key activities of the church from our, one of our central passages in Acts chapter two. We've, we've covered this passage a few times in recent history, so we're not gonna cover that today, but I will make reference to it here by way of, uh, of the opening. And it's from Acts chapter two, verses 42 uh, to 47. And, and right there in Acts 2, 42, it's just a page back in your scripture if you're in Acts 4, uh, we see the central activities of the early church. We see that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We see that they were devoted to being a people of prayer. We see that they were devoted to communion with one another, not just the, the service of communion, but actually getting together and breaking bread as well. And we see here in Acts 2, 42, they were devoted to fellowship. The Greek word there that's used for fellowship in Acts 2.42 is koinonia. It literally means partnership, shared life, oneness. Koinonia carries with it the idea that biblical fellowship is much more than just people with a shared interest, but it insists on shared life found in true gospel-centered biblical community with one another. You know, we live as Americans in a great nation. We enjoy tremendous freedoms. And our founders envisioned a country and set out to reclaim a country that sits under the authority of God and his word rather than under the authority of the king, an independent nation from monarchy with the autonomy to live out our lives as we collectively 
see fit. And while we as Americans do enjoy many of the blessings of that framework and that paradigm, if we're not careful, that philosophical framework that we hold dear as Americans can work directly against the biblical framework that we should hold to and hold dear as Christians. And as Americans, while we would champion ideals like freedom and autonomy and independence, as Christians, there's a sense where we are called to champion surrender. Surrender to the lordship of Christ's authority. Shared identity with Christ's body. And a dependence upon Christ's sacrifice for our daily lives and for our eternity. And Acts chapter 2 shows us that the church, and it, as it began and as it began to flourish, was devoted to fellowship. And as we'll see today from just one example of this in Acts chapter 4, the early church displayed a shared ownership of our lives together in their shared identity as a community of Christ. So let's look together again at our text for today in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number, everyone say full number. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. May God bless the reading of his word. What we want to look at today is that a New Testament church is a community of believers united by faith in Christ and by a commitment to the genuine expression of their common faith through shared lives with one another. First, let's look together at a community that is united by shared identity. Verse 32 begins, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The full number. This was the entirety of the church. We're all united as one. There were no holdouts. There was no one that maintained an independent or a separate spirit. It involved every single member of the New Testament, New Covenant community. There was no one that thought, you know, it'll be okay if I just uh, don't go and if, if I'm just kind of make my faith a private matter. It'll be okay just to never be in church or with the body and just kind of watch messages online. Now, I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to be able to watch messages online if we can't be in the body, to go back and hear what was preached if we have to be away. Those are tremendous tools that we have here in our day. But we were never called to live out our Christian life separately or independent. We were called to live out our Christian life in community, and the early church did just that. It says that the full number of those who believe, this is an important qualifier for who the text is referring to. It wasn't just those who may have attended or been checking it out or those that maybe thought they were doing God a favor for being there at church on Sunday. Maybe those that were just attending because culturally that's what you do. Or maybe they were a part of the community because maybe that's what their family did. No, this were those that identified with Christ because they believed. And what did they believe in? 
They believed in the gospel. They believed in the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. Last week, Alex shared with us in, in its fullness, again, what the gospel is as we talked about our responsibility in evangelism. And he centered on Romans 6.23. Where we understand the reality that we have all been born into sin, every single one of us, without exception, from me to the very back and the left side to the right, have been born separated from God because of our sin. We're born into that. And we have no hope. Ephesians 2 says we are without God. We have no hope and we're without God in the world. That's our, that's our default condition. And because of that, as Alex shared with us last week, Romans 6, 23 begins by saying the wages of sin is death. What we earn for our sin, for who we are by default, is death, not just physically, but separation from God for eternity. But thankfully, that, that verse doesn't stop at death. There's a comma, not a period. But the free gift, as in opposition to a wage, the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. How? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we recognize that we're altogether separated from God because of our sin and what's coming to us because of that, and we recognize what Christ has offered our, on our behalf as he stepped into our experience in the form of a man, lived a perfect sinless life, took that wage upon himself in death on the cross, and then rose again as God himself to demonstrate his power over death, hell, and the grave and to give us the promise of an eternal hope and a resurrection. When we recognize that and turn to that and yield to his authority, we become a member of Christ's church. And this was what marked out those who belonged to the covenant community that we see in Acts. So we see the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Literally, this could be translated the same heart and soul, is as if every person that was a member of the church had the exact same heart, the exact same soul, and was of the same mind. Collectively, the entire church was marked by unity. There was this pervasive spirit of oneness that existed among those who believed. And this wasn't a worldly unity that just says, you know, we, anything goes and we'll, we'll accept anyone, everyone, no matter what they think or believe, into the community. No. This was a unity that was rooted in the shared fundamental identity in Christ and a commitment to the teaching of his word. The picture that we see of the early church here is actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel is prophesying in the name of the Lord, and this is what he says, of the day that we live in. And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. The picture that we see here of the church is not only a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, it's actually a fulfillment of one of the prayers that Jesus himself prayed as he walked the earth. Uh, in, in John chapter 17, we find what is often referred to as the high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus initially is praying for uh, the believers, the apostles, those that are physically there present with him at that time and praying for what they are about to go through as he approaches the cross. But then the prayer transitions and Jesus begins also to pray not only for those that are there, but for us as well. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, talking about the apostles and those that were physically with him, but also for those who, who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Three different times in Jesus' prayer, he prays that his church may be one, perfectly united in our identity in Christ. And he appeals here to the most perfect standard of oneness, the oneness that he exists perfectly in union with the Father. Jesus and the Father were literally one, are literally one, and his prayer for us as his church is that we collectively will experience that same level of oneness and unity. And amazingly here, Jesus tells us twice that when we display that type of community, that type of oneness as the body, that our fellowship becomes a testimony to the truth of the gospel. Jesus literally says the unity and oneness of the church proves that he came, that he lived perfectly, that he died on the cross for our sin, that he rose again. It literally, literally puts that on display. But sadly, we see that the church is so often marked by just the opposite, right? We see the church is so often marked by division and schism and infighting. And why do we think that is? Well, first of all, of course, we have a flesh, right? We have a sin nature that tugs against trying to cooperate within the body for unity and oneness. It wants to demand our way and, and wants to have that spirit of independence. But we also have the opposition of the enemy, who instead of being the father of unity is the father of division, who is consistently and constantly striving to create division within the church because he knows that when he does that, it impacts the testimony of the truth of the gospel to the world around us. Our shared identity as followers of Christ should mark us out as a community that belongs to him and bears witness to a lost world with the reality of his coming. So first we see that we are called to be a community united by shared identity. Next, we see that we are to be a community united by shared devotion. Look back at Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. It says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great grace, excuse me, and great grace was upon them all. We see, first of all here, that they were displaying great power. Not power in and of themselves, but power because of their commitment to a devotion to sound doctrine. The power that the apostles, the teachers of the early church were able to put on display was not a self-made power. It was not just power because they were in a leadership position. The power came through the preaching and the teaching and the unified commitment to the Word of God. They were, it, was, it was unity by a bold, uncompromising proclamation of the gospel. And we see here that part of their message centered on the truth of the resurrection. The resurrection being the differentiator, not just for the early church, but for even us today. You know, if, if you took the resurrection out of Christianity, what you have is another world religion based on the teachings of a great teacher. What you have at best is a potential promise of a future hope. But with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the key difference in the fact that we have both the teachings of a risen Savior and the fulfilled promise of our own resurrection to eternal life one day 
in Christ. So their unity was not just a general anything goes tolerance. The unity that they had was based in the authoritative teaching of the word by the apostles and an unwavering commitment to sound doctrine by the church. So not only do we see that they demonstrated great power in their devotion to sound doctrine, but they also demonstrated great grace in their devotion to one another. As followers of Christ, they were united as members of the New Covenant community. And they experienced together the favor of lives surrendered to Christ. And we talk about the favor of lives surrendered to Christ. That's not a, hey, everything's going to be great, everything's going to go well. Ask the believers in Ukraine today if that's true. No. The favor of a life surrendered to Christ means that even in situations like our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are facing, we have the promise collectively of his presence and knowing that not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. As the early church began to spread from Jerusalem and beyond, one of the very first churches that we learn about in Scripture uh, outside of Jerusalem is a church in Antioch. And as the church hears of this and they hear what's going on down in Antioch, they decide to send Barnabas to go investigate to see what's going on. We just met Barnabas in our text for today. And so Barnabas goes to Antioch uh, to see what's going on there. And what he finds there in Antioch is the exact same spirit of grace that he had been experiencing and grown accustomed to in the church there at Jerusalem. Uh, looking together, let's look together in Acts chapter 11 beginning in verse 19. It says, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So the very same grace of God that was prevalent and demonstrated throughout the church in Jerusalem is now spreading to other churches as they begin to move out from Jerusalem and establish throughout the region. And what we see here at this point is that it's because of the unity and the commitment to the apostles' teaching, the commitment to one another, that it's at Antioch where the members of the church, the gathered community, began to first be called Christians. And the construction of the text, the grammatical arrangement, suggests that this was something that was given to them from the outside. This was not a self-identified uh, title. This was something from the outside looking in. People would see this community of believers and say, those guys are like that Jesus guy. They're like little Christs. And some believe it was even could have been used as a term of derision uh, against them. But what that means is that the very prayer that Jesus prayed, that the grace that's displayed by a unified church would bear witness to him and his coming, was already being fulfilled as the church began to spread. And this level of unity and connectedness and grace and oneness doesn't come naturally to us. We have a flesh. We have uh, desires that draw us uh, away from one another. But when we meditate on the fact and dwell on the fact of what Jesus has done for us, the level of grace and forgiveness he has offered us, then surely we can offer that same level of grace towards others. In our definition of church, our emphasis on fellowship comes in the exhortation to stir one another up to love and good works. We get that from Hebrews chapter 10, 
beginning in verse 24, where the author writes, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day approaching. That phrase, love and good works, could literally be translated selfless sacrifice in good deeds or deeds of charity, acts of kindness. And this is just one of the numerous one another commands that we find all throughout the New Testament, peppered throughout the entirety of the New Testament. We see the continuous exhortation and command to how we are to engage with one another in the body of Christ. One another in English is two words. In, in Greek, it actually comes from one Greek word, alelon. And it's not always translated as one another, but we find alelon at least 47 times in the New Testament, connected to an exhortation or a command on how we are to operate towards one another. And I'm going to hit these rapid fire. Don't worry about trying to keep up or write them in your notes. If you're in community group with us, they're in your community group guide for this week, so you can go back and reference those. Uh, but I just want you to see how pervasive our call uh, to one another is throughout the New Testament. All right, so you're ready? Let's go. The first third of these commands concern the unity of the body. We're called to be at peace with one another, not to grumble among one another, to be of the same mind with one another, to accept one another, to wait for one another before beginning the Lord's Supper, not to bite, devour, or consume one another, to not boastfully challenge or envy one another, to gently and patiently tolerate one another, to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiven to one another, to bear with and forgive one another, to seek good for one another and not to repay evil for evil, not to complain against one another and to confess our sins to one another. Another third of these commands concern love for one another. Several verses plainly tell us to love one another. They tell us through love to serve one another, to tolerate one another in love, to greet one another with a kiss of love, and be devoted to one another in love. Seven of the one another commands stress humility, the attitude of humility and deference that we are called to have towards other believers, where we're called to give preference to one another in honor, to regard one another as more important than ourselves, to serve one another, wash one another's feet, not to be haughty, be of the same mind, be subject to one another, and to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. And the remainder concern general instructions for how we are to live out our lives together in this new covenant community. We're called not to judge one another, not to put a stumbling block in another's way, to greet one another with a kiss, for husbands and wives not to deprive one another, to bear one another's burdens, speak truth to one another, not lie to one another, comfort one another concerning the resurrection, encourage and build up one another, stimulate one another to love and good needs, pray for one another, and be hospitable to one another. I think God wanted us to know how we should act towards one another. So in addition to our shared identity, our shared devotion to the teaching of the word and the fellowship of the body marks us out as a community committed to Christ. Third, we are to be a community united by shared resources. Let's reread Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, for my Conservative, staunch Republican friends, don't get nervous. We're not about to launch into a biblical defense of socialism. That's not what's in view here. What we are going to look at, however, is how the church should be caring for its own. And when we take this call to seeking the welfare of those around us 
and seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized if the church as a whole really did live this out the way we see in the New, in the New Testament, then maybe we wouldn't have a need for government social programs at all. Just a thought. Don't get mad at me. Let's move on. First, we see that they had a corporate perspective, a corporate perspective. When we live out our shared lives together in community, it requires a perspective shift on what we would classify as our belongings. Have you ever had someone ask you to borrow something and you hesitated, like, I don't really want to, I don't really want to let them borrow that, right? Because I like that thing. And they might return it late or not return it at all, or they might break it, or they're not going to take care of it the way I would. We do that, right? I know I've done that. I mean, come on, don't, don't lie to me. We've done that, right? We, we, it's our stuff, right? We have that perspective on it. In fact, it's one of the very first things that we try to teach out of children, right? You see a couple of two-year-olds playing with toys, and one will come over and take the toy from the other one, and what does the first one say? Mine. And yet, how often do we do that as adults, right? We do the same thing. If we view the things that we possess as devoted to the Lord and ourselves as stewards of those things, it can help us not to be so attached to them, but instead to see them as tools and resources that can be used for the good of the community of Christ. If this activity that we're seeing in verse 4 sounds familiar, that they had all things in common, it should, because we see it back in Acts 2 as the church is being established. Acts 2.44 says, all who believe were together and had all things in common. Almost the exact same thing we see here in Acts 4. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's houses, lands, food, clothes, money. They didn't have cars, but probably horses and and things like that, donkeys. And it doesn't mean that as a church that we covet what others possess or have an expectation that someone give us things because we need them. But what it does mean is that the early church placed communal value rather than individual value on the material things in their possession. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So next we see not only do they have corporate perspective, but there was corporate generosity. Corporate generosity. Not a needy person among them. What a testimony of the church. What a testimony it would be for cross-community church for us to say, hey, as far as we know, there is not a single need within this body of believers that has been unmet. And I want to just take a moment here to say it's important to note that this was not asceticism, meaning uh, a view of trying to minimize to the very bare bones minimum to live off of possible and giving the rest away. This was not that at all. What this was was this, this spirit of generosity, a commitment to a moderate lifestyle and generous lives for the sake of one another. The giving and the things that we see here were voluntary. They were not under compulsion. It wasn't this legalistic requirement that you sell off these things if you had excess. It was out of a heart of generosity and desire to meet the needs for one another. We see right in Acts 5, right, right immediately following our text, we see where Barnabas and our text had sold a piece of land and just because who he was, you know, we get Barnabas, that's where we get Barney from. Uh, you know, Barney the dinosaur, probably some of you know that, some of you don't, but 
He's an encourager, right? That's, that's who Barnabas was. And so Barnabas had a field. He's like, hey, I don't need this field. I can sell it and bring the proceeds and I can use this. And that was Barnabas's heart to do it. And we see in the very next uh, example of what happens in a negative example with someone uh, that it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a thing that was compulsive. It was voluntary to what they did with their possessions. Acts 5, beginning in verse 1, we see Ananias and his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. And seeing what had happened with Barnabas, we can only guess what their motives were, but for whatever reason, they decided to come and present only a portion of the proceeds and yet represent it as if it was the entire thing. And let's look at what Peter says to them. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, uh, that was a choice to communicate that it was the whole thing and yet keep back part of it. They were conspiring together. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? There was no requirement for him to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? He could have come, Ananias could have come and said, hey, I sold this piece of property. I'm tithing off of it to the church. Here's 10%, 25%. And that would have brought blessing to the church. So we see that it was not a compulsive thing, but it was voluntary giving the activity of the early church. We see where they're selling homes and lands, but that didn't mean they didn't own homes, right? We see that home ownership was common among the early church, so much so that that's often where the church met was in homes. Acts 5, further down in verse 42, we see it says, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So what's in view here is not a life of asceticism where we're called to renounce all possessions, but a life of, moder of moderation, a life of generosity for the sake of meeting real needs within the body. And this wasn't just a one-time event. It wasn't just something that showed up in Acts 2 and showed up in Acts 4. If we continue to read, we see it continuing over in Acts 6 as the church continues to grow. Acts 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in what? The daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. As the church increased, the congregational needs increased, the care needs of the church increased, and the regular pattern of the church was continuing to bring things to the leaders of the church that could be distributed to meet the needs of the body. And that activity grew so much to the point they actually had to appoint the first deacons to begin to oversee that distribution to provide care for the body. Throughout the beginning of the church, throughout everything that we see in the New Testament, we see a consistent characteristic of their fellowship as being freely sharing with one another what each other had and ensuring all the needs of the body were met. You know, I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to preach this message today in our Ecclesia series on fellowship. Uh, and because this wasn't just a message that uh, I decided to choose a topic uh, to preach on. This was the next message in the series. 
And this wasn't a message that we decided to preach today in the series because there's an ax to grind or because there's something we think this church needs to work on. It's actually quite the opposite. My wife, Laurie, and I have been uh, followers in Christ for over 20 years, and we've been in a few different churches. And I can honestly say before the Lord and without reservation that this church, this covenant community is the first time we have ever experienced anything close to what we see in the book of Acts. A few uh, months ago, back in November, uh, one of our teammates uh, with crew, we serve full-time with crew, for those of you that don't know that, one of our teammates and his wife had traveled from Virginia to Texas to perform a wedding. And it was a couple, a young couple, they had discipled, and so he was going to do the wedding. And she wasn't feeling well that week leading up to it, and they went to uh, Texas and did the wedding, and she progressively got worse uh, over the days that they were there. And, and on the day, that, uh, the day before they were scheduled to return home, she had turned significantly worse and ended up being taken to the hospital and passed away from COVID. Uh, and he was immediately hospitalized himself with COVID. And so the very next day, Laurie and I immediately went out there to be with him uh, through that time. We shared what was going on with our community group and with the staff and the elder team. And we were overwhelmed by the love and support that we received from this body. We were overwhelmed by the level of care and concern and prayer and checking in on us and checking in on our teammate and just making sure that we had all that we needed. When his time there was over, he couldn't fly home, and so we drove him the 2,500 miles from Texas back to his home in Virginia and then ourselves back here to Buford. And all along the way, I'm getting messages and text messages from our group and from our uh, fellow elders I said, hey, how are you doing? Are you guys okay? Do you have any needs? When we got home, we walked in to a full meal ready and prepared for us from our community group so that we could just come in and eat and just relax, knowing that we were spiritually and physically and emotionally exhausted. Our group had decided on their own to make sure that we had that to come home to. One of the ladies in our group had left a small gift behind for Laurie just to be a blessing to her. And as we sat down to eat, a knock, we had a knock at the door, and uh, it was a beautiful floral arrangement. And it was from the couple, the young couple, uh, which are children of a couple that's members of our church that we have been ministering to and pouring into, just to say thank you uh, for uh, pastoring us. That's what covenant community looks like, church. And I'm so thankful to say that that is on full display here. And my encouragement to us today is to continue to stir one another up to love and to good works so that we can share the light and the hope of Christ in a vibrant and believable way with the community that surrounds us. So what do we do with today's message? First, let's together embrace the blessing of shared identity secured by the blood of Christ. This begins as we enter into that covenant relationship with Christ as we recognize our standing before him as separated and receive that free gift of eternal life as we yield to him and his lordship. And it continues as we are in covenant community with one another in a local church. It's why we, stre we stress membership, covenant membership so much, so that we know who the body is, so that we can ensure that we are collectively doing what we can to provide care for the body. And then we should together enjoy the blessing of shared life found in the body of Christ, expressed through regular fellowship together as a community devoted to the word 
and devoted to one another and expressed through radical generosity as we live out our shared lives together. Jesus radically gave of himself to serve us. Surely as covenant members of Cross Community Church, we can continue to strive to radically give of ourselves to serve one another. Would you pray with me, church? Our Father, we come before you today just so thankful and grateful that as we review a message like this, as we see the pattern of the early church and how they were so deeply committed and connected to one another in koinonia, in partnership in the gospel, in partnership with one another, in sharing their lives with one another as a testimony to the community around them. We're so grateful and thankful, God, that we get to experience a piece of that here even today as Cross Community Church. Father, surely we don't do it perfectly, so help us to grow towards you in this, God, as a body of believers. Help us to grow closer to you and closer to one another as we seek to live out shared lives in this community and embrace and enjoy the blessings that we have from being a member of this body. And Father, may the way that we live out our lives be testimony to those around us in Beaufort, in Port Royal, in Ladies Island, in St. Helena, in Bluffton, Okatee, in Ridgeland, in Hilton Head. May we continue to display the beauty and the power of the gospel, the oneness of being followers of Christ, united together by your word, by your spirit. Thank you, Father, for bringing us together in covenant community with you, in covenant community with one another. And Lord, as we begin now at this point in the service to turn our hearts once again towards the weekly remembrance of your death, burial, and resurrection through communion, through the Lord's Supper. Lord, we don't want to approach this moment lightly. We want to hold the gravity of what we're about to partake in as we proclaim what you have accomplished in and for our lives through this symbol. And so God, would you just allow us to take a moment right now and as we pause to just search our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just search our hearts for maybe this past week, this past month, anything that might be there that would grieve you. Any thought, word, or deed in our life that might be displeasing or dishonoring to you and not bear witness to the testimony of who we are called to be as new creatures in Christ. So would you just search us right now, Father, and show us those things. Father, as you do reveal these things to us, help us to be quick to repent of these things, to change our mind, to turn from these things and to you once again, confessing them before you. Knowing, God, that it is safe to come to you in confession and surrender, that you are waiting with open arms for us to return and to seek forgiveness in whatever the things that might be in our lives. And that you are always ready 
to forgive, on the authority of your word that tells us that if we will confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as we do that, God, we are so grateful and thankful for the eternal assurance that comes with knowing that we belong to you. Even in these moments where we get tripped up by our sin, our flesh, the things that distract us from following after you, that we are secure in you and that we can thrive in our relationship with you and have true fellowship with you as we quickly confess and repent of those things that we find in our lives. And so as we turn to this time of communion today, God, may you be glorified. We pray and ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.